wearing a rider's jersey, and then I'm going to jump into this week, okay? So quick review. If you weren't here last week, here's the quick review. Jesus said he'd build an overcoming church and that the gates of hell would not prevail against it. And now we look 2,000 years some later, and there's about 2.3 million people on the globe who call themselves Christians. Again, maybe not all are, not all would be practicing Christians, but that's a pretty substantial, that's 31% of the world's population call themselves by the name of Christ. So he has built a church, an overcoming church. And the question I asked last week is, we know that his church will overcome because he promised and his track record is incredible, but will Hillcrest be a part of the overcoming church in the future? And so we looked at some of the things that uh, I think were encouragements to us. There are things that we can build on, some strengths that we have as a church. And uh, I talked about three of them. that We call them our core, core values. Basically, it's things that have defined us in the past. In our, Do you know Hillcrest is 98 years old? We've changed our name. We've changed our location. We've changed a lot of things. Same message, same Jesus, best leader ever. Still following him. But if we're going to be part of the over, overcoming church that Jesus is building in the future... Well, we need to, there are some things from our past that will help us. The one we talked about, I'm going to just pull, pull that slide up, Hillcrest Next, because this is, these are three weeks of vision here at Hillcrest. First, we talked about who are we? Who are we? And there's three values that we have up there. Personal engagement, next generation focus, and interdependence. And so just quickly, personal engagement, we fully participate. You can go to the next slide. We fully participate in the life of the church, taking our next steps on the discipleship pathway, receiving and giving ministry. We worship together, speak truth in love to one another, and receive the word, pray together, and share about our personal challenges, successes, and experiences. So a church that's part of Christ's overcoming church, the body that he is building for himself, and he is the head of the body, um, is engaged in the mission of Jesus. And we're engaged relationally with each other. And we're engaged in the direction that uh, God gives to leadership. So leaders are equipping and everyone is serving and people are growing. And it sounds a lot like Ephesians 4.16, which says, From him, who's the head, from him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Our mission statement here at Hillcrest, you got keep, Can you do it with me? We strive to see all people reconciled to God and mature in Christ. That's awesome. Many of you know it. That's amazing. It starts with we strive because it's something we're all called to play a part in. Personal engagement. That's a value that's been in our church. It's it's enabled us to do so many things in the past, and it's a reality in in the present, and it's something for the future as well. And I just want to say, you do well at these. These are core values because they're true of us. You do well at that. It's a blessing to serve in a church where people, when they hear where we're going and what we're doing, that they jump in and they engage. The next one is next generation focus from last week. So we said, we will make significant sacrifices in order to pass the faith on to the next generation by means of excellent kids in student ministries, modern music, new methods and technology, and whatever methods of communication and impartation are most relevant and effective. 
So the instructions in Ephesians 4, which talks about the whole body, the whole body is meant to grow and be built up and love, in love and do its work. The whole body includes the next generations. In fact, a church always has to be looking to the next generations to pass the baton of passion for Christ and his mission in the world. And so we're here 98 years later because every generation that came before us did this. Every generation that came before us had a focus on the next generation. And they didn't just let it stop with themselves because God is building our children and our youth and kids who are yet unborn to become overcoming men and women of God that Jesus is building into a body for himself. They are meant to be his hands, his feet, his mouth, and his heart, active for Moose Jaw for his purposes. In Deuteronomy 6, 5 to 7, it's got great instructions for parents or older generations. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These commands that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about when the, them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, and when you get up. Impress them on the next generation. And then the last one we talked about is interdependence. We deliberately choose kingdom unity and impact. We value partnerships by working together and by sharing content, equipment, insights, experience, and workers across Hillcrest Ministries and beyond with other kingdom people and organizations. This is the we play well with others value. (laughs) Ephesians 4, 3 to 6 says this, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. There's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. In all, We are building Christ's kingdom, not Hillcrest's kingdom. We're building Christ's kingdom and we're building his body in Moose Jaw. And so we want to see new strength in our church body. We want to see new maturity. We want to see new unity. We want to see those things here, but we want to see that across the board in the city as well. We want the whole body in Moose Jaw to be built up. So we commit to bless partners in ministry and be cooperators rather than competitors in this city. We want the head of the church in Moose Jaw to have a mature, united, strong body to give leadership to. So those are the three core values I talked about last week. And we're just talking about this is the, just if, especially if you're new to the church, this is a little bit who we are. This is how we got here. These are values that we've seen in our past, in our present, and we believe they're going to be part of our future. Now, why am I wearing a rider's jersey? Of course, half of you guys are saying, because it's the Labor Day Classic, right? That's exciting, Labor Day Classic. Without, I would say maybe there's an exception, and the exception might be the Grey Cup. But besides the Grey Cup, there's no other game that the riders play that we want to win. If we lose every game in the whole season, we want to win this weekend because it's against the Boo Bombers. I mean, the Blue Bombers, sorry. (laughs) I see some Manitoba folks in the crowd here shaking their head at me. You know, the funny thing is, I grew up in Manitoba. You want to know my journey to become a Riders fan? I was born in Vancouver, moved with my family to Vancouver, went to school, and the kids said, "Which, which football team do you support? And I said, I don't know. I'll go home and ask my dad. So I went home and I asked my dad. And he said, the BC Lions. So I went back and I said, we support the BC Lions. They treated me so badly. So badly. 
that in my little childhood heart, I swore I will never support the Blue Bombers. <laughs> so when I moved to Saskatchewan and I found out you guys don't like the Blue Bombers either, I just felt like, ah, oh, I found my people. This is awesome. I can be a Riders fan. So there you go. It's a funny bandwagon jumping experience, but I got here. I was actually looking for a Cody Fajardo jersey this week. I ended up with buying this one at Canadian Tire, but I couldn't find a Cody Fajardo uh, jersey. Um, he's the quarterback, and he's also a Christian, and he's using his platform to talk about Christ. In fact, I listened to some of his stuff this week, a 10-minute recording I found on the internet of him talking about when his parents got divorced, two things that got him through it. One, he said, I, I still knew that my parents loved me. And that was huge. And then number two, he said, and I knew, knew, knew that God was with me through it all. I thought that was pretty powerful as I, I was listening to that this week. Um, you know what the bonus with his jersey is? Does anyone have a Cody Fajar jersey here? Anyone got? It, he's number seven. He's number seven. If you have read the Bible for a lot of years, you might have stumbled across what number seven is. Number seven is the number of completion in the Bible. Now, for a quarterback, that's what we want him to do. Have a lot of completions today against the Blue Bombers. But spiritually, it's very interesting because lots of things in the Bible, they're, they're considered sort of finished or perfect or complete because there's seven, seven days of creation. If you, do the, you check out the Lord's Prayer, there's seven petitions in the Lord's Prayer. In the, in the Gospel of John, there's seven metaphors for how Jesus is the only way to salvation. He's the bread of life. He's the gate. He's the door. He's, he's the way, the truth. And all. You know, all those different ways. And then the one that really stuck out to me this week, when Jesus is dying on the cross, he has seven statements that he makes. And the last one is the ultimate statement of completion. He said, it is finished. Amazing stuff. He'd finished what he came to do. He'd finished the mission that he'd embraced his role as the, the sacrifice for our sins. He's embraced coming as a ba humbly as a baby, living a, a life without sin so that he could be the perfect sacrifice and take our place, take all of our sin and shame on him on the cross, and in exchange we get his Righteous standing with God so that someday we can stand before God, not cowering in our sin and shame, but actually standing there in his grace, in his righteousness. Scripture says, boldly approaching the throne of grace because of what Jesus has done for us. That's completion. That's completion. The thought, the thought that all our sins are forgiven or can be forgiven. And if you have not crossed that line of faith, if you've not trusted in him, he's done everything, everything he's done. It is enough for you to have relationship with God forever. It is enough for you to be reconciled to God. He's done enough. He's done it. We couldn't do it. So the number of completion, I think that's a big thing. I guess I'm also, the other reason I'm wearing this jersey is because today we're going to talk about what it looks like when if Hillcrest wins. What does it look like if we're, if we're a team together going, trying to score and, and to win? What does it look like? Where is the end zone for Hillcrest? Where are we going? 
Where's the end zone that we feel the Holy Spirit is coaching us towards in the next few years? And I want to describe some of those outcomes that I, I see. And this is not me alone. This is uh, a two-year process uh, with our lead team and our elders and the rest of our staff. And then earlier this year, we presented these, uh, these um, vision piece, this vision paper to our members so there's been a long process full of prayer and deliberation and writing and rewriting and to come to today. So I want to talk about where we're going. First, let me just read to you from Matthew chapter 13. Matthew 13, verse 1. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat in it while all the people stood on the shore. And then he told them many things in parables, saying, A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil, where it produced a crop. 160 or 30 times what was sown. Whoever has ears, let them hear. So Jesus is sitting by a lake talking about farming. Doesn't that sound like a very Moose Javian thing to do? I want to just ask this question. How many of you had a conversation about farming or ranching this summer? At least one. How many of you had that conversation how many had at least one conversation about farming and ranching while you were sitting by a lake? Okay, several of you. Okay, let's make it more. How many had a conversation about farming and ranching and your conversation was with Jesus? Okay, let's go one more. How many had a f- conversation with Jesus about farming and ranching and you were sitting by a lake? Okay, did I get anyone? We're talking about Something that's pretty familiar to us here in Saskatchewan. This has been a challenging year for farmers and especially for ranchers. It's been a very, very challenging year. So here's Jesus in an agricultural society where not a few are farmers and ranchers, but where the majority are farmers and ranchers. He's speaking their language. He's speaking about realities they know of about ground that doesn't produce well and other ground that does. And it's, it's a parable. A parable is, some people say it's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Uh, the thing about a parable is it, had, it could conceal truth and reveal truth, depending on whether you were spiritually attuned. If your heart was in the right place and you were, you were ready for what Jesus was going to say, you'd get it. It would be revealed. You'd understand Spiritual realities through his stories. And then for others, it was concealed. It was hidden. The early part of Jesus' ministry, he, it seemed like every time he did a miracle, he would immediately try to cover it up. Do you know that? Jesus would say, don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone. Because it wasn't his time to go to the cross yet. It wasn't his time for him to be noticed on a, a national scale. So it's like Jesus is concealing things in the early years and then eventually things become revealed and it is his time to go to the cross. 
So later on, the disciples catch Jesus and they say, well, what does it mean about the farmer and the soils? What does it mean? And this is what Jesus says in verse 18. He says, listen then to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom, just quickly, the kingdom of God is wherever Jesus is king. So he's not building a geographical kingdom that's like Israel. That's what people probably expected, Israel and a military leader to throw off the Romans. But no, he's building a global kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom. It doesn't have its own, it doesn't have an army like most kingdoms. It's a spiritual kingdom. And the revolution that comes with this kingdom is a revolution in the human heart. When the kingdom of God, when Jesus started out in his ministry, he would say this, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent for the kingdom of God is here. It's close. In other words, you have the opportunity to embrace God as your king. You have an opportunity to embrace Jesus as Lord and King. So turn, that's what repent means, turn from living for sin or for lesser kingdoms or for whatever idols our hearts can create and change your life to line up with the King. Jesus, who is the leader that Israel was longing for and that the world has been longing for and that we are longing for, he is the King that we're waiting for. He's the one we are created for. Embrace him as king. It says, when anyone hears this message of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their heart. This is the seed sown along the path. The seed falling on the rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since they have no root, they only last a short time. And when trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. And the seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word. But the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. But the seed falling on the good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. This is the one who produces a crop yielding 160 or 30 times what was sown. So he talks about three different types of soil and it's three different types of people that don't produce a harvest, that when they hear the message about God's kingly leadership that they can embrace, that he'll lead them in their lives and he'll forgive their sins and all this stuff, it's not fruitful. It doesn't become fruitful in their lives and it gives three different reasons. I just, because I'm a pastor, I made them all C words here. That's what we do in our spare time. Just alliterate, right? So the first thing is some people don't produce a harvest because of confusion. They, it says in the scripture, they don't understand it. How is having Jesus' leadership in your life such a treasure? Maybe they hear Cody Fajardo say, uh, you know, this, having God in my life when I was going through my parents' divorce was the difference maker. And they say, I don't understand that. I don't get that. That doesn't seem real to me. Or, or, I, so they don't understand it. Some people just don't understand it. And we have scriptures that tell us that 
people off are blind. The God of this world blinds the, the minds of unbelievers. So they, they don't understand it. They don't get it. It's spiritually received, and they, they don't receive it because they don't understand it. Then some people don't pr- produce a harvest because of comfort and convenience. They only want Jesus when he makes their lives easier, not when standing with him will be tough. Jesus didn't promise to take away all our troubles. In fact, he promised that in this world we would have bonus trouble. Even if it's mild, many of us have experienced a strange time in history where the trouble that Christians get has been much milder than it usually is. This is not the norm. This is the exception. But still, you've probably experienced some extra bonus trouble if you People know you are a Christian. There's probably, whether it's just teasing or something small, you probably experience some bonus. And, and these ones, they didn't, um, they didn't continue to follow because opposition arrived. Persecution. It says trouble or persecution comes because of the word, and they quickly fell away. Jesus was really kind when he told people to consider the cost of being his disciple. He said, anyone who wants to follow him must be willing to carry their own cross, which was another, I mean, this wasn't just a metaphor. We use it today, carry your cross, as a metaphor. Back then, it was a literal. People could see the Roman crosses on the side of the roads. They go, okay, I will carry my cross, and then they will nail me to it, and I will die. I can't be Jesus' disciple unless I'm willing to go that far. That was a kindness from Jesus to really lay it out at the beginning and say, consider the cost of being my disciple. So some people don't produce a harvest because of confusion. Some gives comfort and convenience, and when opposition and persecution and trouble comes, they don't continue. And then the final one is conflict. Some people don't produce a harvest because of conflict. It says, when the worries of life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word. So some people find themselves torn between two masters. Maybe the worries of this life dominate their thinking instead of the things God is saying about himself and about them. Or maybe the conflict is the age-old conflict with money. Jesus said you cannot serve both God and money. You're going to hate one and love the other. One of them is going to be master in your life, and the other one you will try to use to serve that master. So the deceitfulness of earthly wealth was a problem for many, and they didn't, weren't fruitful because they were living for the wrong scorecard. But then there's the good soil. There are some that are spiritually hungry, and they are spiritually ready. They're good soil, and they're ready for seed. These are the ones that hear how God so loved them that Jesus came to rescue them from the penalty of their sin and the power of sin in their lives. And they believe. They hear how God wants to save them from an empty way of life. It might seem good on the surface, but they know in their hearts there's not much to it. It's not really what they were made for. And they believe. They hear that he came on a rescue mission that included the cross and invites them to trust that what he did on the cross was enough for their sin to be pardoned and enough for their eternity to be secured and enough for them to have friendship with God forever, and they receive it all. There's good soil that's ready for the seed. So Jesus is saying when good seed finds good soil, there will be a spiritual harvest, a real 
bumper crop. 30 times what was sown. 60 times what was sown. Or 100 times the seed that is planted. That's a harvest. So today I want to share four vision pieces that all go together to see a great spiritual harvest. Now it's vision because it's stuff we aspire to. It's not true yet. Not fully true. Maybe it's partially true. But it's not as fully true. Some of the things I talked about last week, I would say that's the majority of Hillcrest. They personally engage. They have a next generation focus. And they are happy to be good players, interdependent in the kingdom of God and really worked for the kingdom. That's pretty true, I would say, of the majority of Hillcrest. I would say these next ones, we don't score quite as high, but I think this is our future. We call them aspirational values because we aspire to see them become true in our time. So the first one is, do we have a slide for all these? There we go. The first one is multiplication. So here's our statement that we wrote. It says, we desire to see every disciple making more disciples. And we want to multiply leaders. We want to multiply opportunities, multiply ministries, multiply groups. And I'm going to throw this one in there, which is just implied but not stated. And multiply disciples. A successful apple tree is not successful just by making apples. It needs to make more apple trees. Let me draw your attention to a few things. A few things in here. Matthew 28 is, is great to get us started. Matthew 28, 18 to 20. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Go and make disciples of the nations. This is, I think, the biggest thing about this is that it's a challenge to embrace a God-sized vision of what he can accomplish rather than an infinitely smaller vision that we believe that we could accomplish on our own. There's an exchange here. What you think you can do and what you think God can do. And to see yourself fully partnering with God in what he can do, as opposed to asking God just to bless the things that you could do on your own. It requires God-sized vision. It requires thinking bigger than you thought before because God's in the mix. You know what helps? You know, the people who help me with God-sized vision, um, I'll tell you recently, it's been a lot of our missionaries to Turkey who've helped me. When I talk to some of the ones who've gone over to Turkey, so they go, they've gone over to Turkey and, I mean, there's no real mega churches in Turkey in fact, there's not a lot of tur- churches in Turkey. And so they're just going into communities where there might be uh, zero believers or maybe one believer. And they're praying and believing for millions of, of believers in Turkey. Well, if you're praying and believing for that and strategizing for that, you probably do things a little bit differently. Now, I... You know, I was challenged, I was reading the book uh, Hero Maker, a really great book, and it's talking about the church and how some churches are in decline, some have plateaued, that's better than decline, right, at least your level. Some are growing, some are even reproducing themselves, like starting other churches, and then there are a very few percent, I think it's just one percent, that are multiplying 
So I was challenged when I was reading this book. It was, it was basically saying, well, take your vision and times it by 100. Like if you, if you want to think about what God could do, take what you were planning to do with mostly just you, asking God to bless what you were going to do, and then just times it by 100 to sort of blow the doors off of what you were aiming for. And once you've done that, once you start setting a, looking at a really big goal, which makes you shudder and gulp and your knees knock, then step back and say, and what needs to change to accomplish that? What must change to accomplish that? And I, I feel we're a little bit early in the process in some ways, but I feel, like the, I feel like the vision piece is right, and I feel like God's giving us a few pieces to slot in, and I think he's going to give us more as we go. He's been a good leader all the way till now. With 98 years of Hillcrest history, let's just keep trusting him for the next 100 years. But how do we create a movement that becomes 30-fold or 60-fold or 100-fold, like Jesus says in this parable of this great harvest? I want to talk about just a few things. First one is, we said every disciple making more disciples. In fact, maybe we just need to redefine or reclaim the definition of a disciple. Like, lots of people followed Jesus at certain points when he was popular. He's healing people. His sermons were amazing. People couldn't get enough of him. But he would sort of have these leveling conversations with him, or he'd, he'd say something that was so troubling to them that they'd walk away. He sort of thinned the crowd at times. What does it mean to be a disciple? What does it mean to be a disciple? Let's go back to Matthew 28. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. So the first thing that we could say about a disciple is that they obey. Like, disciple, it comes from, you know, it's basically the same root as discipline, right? So if you were... If you actually ask someone, well, I want to be your disciple, then they'd say, well, there's a, there's a set of practices, there's commands, there's things that you must do in order to embrace my discipline in your life. And you say, yes, sensei, or whatever the, you know, the master's title is. And you embrace that, and you get the benefit of that discipline, and you do it. Well, the first thing that a disciple is, is, is one that obeys. It's one that obeys. See, there were other followers of Jesus when the crowd was bigger. But they weren't necessarily ones who, I mean, they were there because he fed them free bread. They were there because his teaching was amazing, because who doesn't want to see people get healed and miracles? And there's lots of reasons to be in the big crowd that followed Jesus. But then when it came down, when the rubber met the road, it was about, will you obey? Will you follow me truly into whatever comes? So a disciple is one who, be, who obeys, who obeys everything that Jesus has commanded you. I, 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 uh, just recently, I went through a list. I tried to find a list of all of Jesus' commands. And lots of people on the internet have made different lists of the commands. But I found several people have a, there's a common thread. There's a lot of people make a list of 49 commands of Jesus. I don't know why, if that's popular or is that, because I saw some of those commands were a little different on different lists, so I don't know. That's not, I don't think it's a holy number, 49. But it is 
Is it seven sevens? Maybe it is. Okay. But I'm going through it. I'm just going through it. Am I doing all these commands? And I'm, I'm finding stuff where I'm like, oh my goodness, I have to obey that. I'm not obeying that. Like, it was just, I saw in just listing what he's commanded his disciples to do, I just saw stuff in there where I was like, I got to grow. I got to change. I got to obey. Just simply reading what he, what he commanded. Just a list. I realized some things that need to change. A disciple is one who obeys. Here's the other thing. A disciple is one who disciples others. A disciple is one who disciples others. If we redefine a disciple, and I think it's not redefining, it's reclaiming what a disciple is, by insisting that we reproduce through discipling others, I think that's the right way to go. Now, that, that puts an onus on us as church leadership to equip you in this way. This isn't like, I'll just get up and harass you for not doing it. It's our job to equip you so you know how to and you, and, and you have tracks to run on. And you've got lots of encouragement. And there's community that's really, the community around you, whether you're in a, in a life group or, or, or some other ministry, it's really encouraging you in your next steps of discipleship. If you look down a list of Jesus' commands and you go, whoa, there's some stuff i got to work on, that there'd be people in the game with you saying, we'll help you get there. We'll encourage you to get there. You're owning it, but we're with you. We'll be a community that obeys. We'll be a community of disciples. The other thing is that I think we need to, if we're going to have disciples who make more disciples, we need more reproducible models than we use right now. So I don't know how, you know, you might think of, well, you know, I would invite people to church if they want to become a disciple of Jesus or hear the gospel. And that's great, 100% for that. But I said last week, if you didn't have big church and you end up in, where? Does anyone remember where you end up? Podunk. Yeah, if you end up in Podunk, Saskatchewan. Have you been there? Or maybe you grew up there. If you end up in Podunk, Saskatchewan, and there's no big church, maybe there's only like a handful of believers, five or six of you, or maybe you're the only one, could you seed the gospel back into that community? And part of that points back to us as leadership that we need to equip you to do that. So we do lots of things, big church, that we love. But I don't want you to be unequipped in the everyday skills of being able to disciple another person. So I was asking these guys from Turkey, I was saying, what do you do? Like, you go into a community, there's no Christians, and, and how does it work? And they say, well, we invite, uh, we invite people. In, the majority of the, in Turkey, the majority are Muslims. We, say, we invite them, we just say, hey, would you like to um, study the Bible with us? And most, many of them are curious, and they say, yeah, we're interested in that. And then they take them through a highly reproducible way to study the Bible so that the next week, one of them, like let's say they have a group of, you know, five or six people studying the Bible, so that by the second week, one of them can lead the Bible study. Do you believe that? Highly reproducible. They said that they tend to, they tend to pick, they, this is the two anecdotes I heard. One, if it's a mixed group of men and women, they'll almost always choose the leader for next week to be a woman. Now, in that culture, 
you know, there's a bit of that with hierarchical, you know, whatever thing. Women aren't seen as leaders as, as much as men are. So when they pick a woman, they're not trying to sort of upset the apple cart. But what they are trying to say is that anyone can do this. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, in my life, lots of the best leaders are women. I'm not saying all that. I'm just saying that's their, they pick a woman because then the next week everybody goes, oh, she can do that. We all can do this. The other thing they do is they say sometimes they will pick the person who's most hostile to Christianity to be the leader. So you go back and you meet next week and you go, that guy who was asking all the angry questions last week, he's going to lead us through this study? Highly reproducible. Do you want to know what it's about? Do you want to know what's in that, in that Bible study that they do? Four questions. I'm going to give you four questions. They ask, they read the Bible, and then they say, what does this tell us about God? And they discuss. And they say, what does it tell us about people or us? And they discuss. This is called the discovery part. Two questions. Then they move on and they say, who should I share this with? Or who could I share this with? Because they're teaching them even before they're believers that they are meant to disciple others. And then the last question is, if I believe this was the word of God, which initially most would not, what is it calling me to obey? I don't think this is something that just works in Turkey. I think this could work anywhere in the globe. Just to simply sit down, you want to read the Bible with me? It's just four questions. What do you think it says about God? What, is it, what do you see? that? It's, let's discover that together. What do you think it says about people? Who do you think you can share this with or that you should share this with? And finally, if you believe that this was true, what is it calling you to obey? This, I think, is the key of something that has been maybe lost for us. A few weeks ago, Kurt was doing an amazing message talking in, through, through Hebrews, talking about, you know, you know, it's sort of like it's a, it's a scolding, basically, from the Apostle Paul saying, you know, you should be eating meat. It's basically, you should have moved on, you know, and become a teacher. But you, you, you're not, you haven't gone, you haven't matured like you should have, and you're just drinking milk. That's basically the, the scolding. You know, you should have been a teacher. And I was listening to that, and I thought about it, and I thought, and, and Kurt said, you should be discipling. That's what he said, and that's where the light bulb went on for me. I thought, how do we make discipling someone else something that's not just up here that we think, man, there's maybe about five people in the church who really could disciple, or 10 or 20 or whatever, but that it's accessible to so, so, so many more. So what they're doing in Turkey is they're just saying, we're discipling people before they become Christians. We're teaching, them that they, we're teaching them to disciple others before they've even embraced Christ. Because we have to see millions come to Christ. Because that's the vision God's given us. And so what we do has to be super reproducible. So if I'm taken out of the, out of the mix, they could even do this without me. In fact, they intentionally try not to make the people they're working with dependent on them. In Canada, I think we've done a bit of the other. Or maybe we've, we've made too much dependency on, you know, leaders or superstars or something like that and not empowered every man, every woman 
teenagers, boys and girls, with the basic skills to be a discipler. To be a disciple and to be a discipler. They go hand in hand. 2 Timothy 2.2, this is Paul. He's talking to Timothy. He says, the things you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. Now, I want you to think. If Paul is generation one, how many generations is he describing? Does anyone know the answer? Timothy, what I told you in the presence of many witnesses. So maybe he had a small group he was discipling. Remember when we were with that group? Lots of other people heard me say it. I said some things to you about what it's like to follow Jesus. Remember that? Remember how I discipled you? In tr- okay, so that's Paul, and then it's Timothy and some others. It says, now I want you to find reliable people and teach them. So now we got three generations, Paul, Timothy, and reliable people. Reliable people who will be able to be teaching others for generations. I kind of think in Paul's lifetime, he actually saw those four generations happen. I don't know what the timeline is from when he wrote this to when he died. Can you imagine if you discipled some people, but you did it in such a way that they knew that being a disciple meant that they would disciple people? And they did it in such a way that it was absolutely clear that if you're a disciple of Christ, that you also disciple people. And so on and so on and so on. Multiplication is what we're talking about. A great big harvest. Reading the Bible like a disciple. Reading the Bible with an urgency to obey. I think it's one of the shifts that we need in our time. Because I think we've had a, for, for a long time, and, and I, I would say I'm not giving anyone grief over this. I'm just saying for a long time I think we've thought, I need more information. I need more information. I need more information as we've studied the Bible. But you know we need to apply what we're learning. And Jesus taught that. That if you hear my words and don't put it into practice, your house is built on sand. But if you hear my words and you put them into practice, your house is built on the rock. So we need, an, we need an urgent shift towards obedience. And we need an urgent shift towards obedience. So we have to have that happening in our small groups. We have to have that happening in our prayer meetings. We have to have it everywhere where people say, okay, it's not just enough to hear the word of God. We have to hear and obey. We have to obey all that Christ commands. We have to be an obedient people, a responsive people. So there's, so that's number one. I'm going to move quickly because I've got three more. Let me move. So multiplication, a big vision of what God can do. And, and I don't have time to unpack it all, but I'm, I think obedience and, and e- it, things that we can replicate easily are what we need as a church. Mark 11, 15 to 17, on reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves, and he would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, is is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. 
I'm not going to focus on the den of robbers. Obviously, they're probably gouging. It's probably like buying a toy for your kid at the airport. You, they've got you, so you pay a lot, right? I've had that too many times happen in my life where it's like, I'm in the Calgary airport, and it's the only time I got to shop, and boy, am I paying for it. But it's the house of prayer for all nations that I want to focus on. A house of prayer for all nations. So God had intended for this kingdom to go to the nations, for his kingly reign to go to the nations, and he goes up to the temple, and there's a, there's a court of the Gentiles. So it's a place for people who weren't Jews to come into the Jewish temple and be a part in proximity to the presence of God. And they said, well, it's a big weekend. It's a Passover. Let's fill this court. It's just the Gentiles anyhow. Let's fill this court with the animals we're going to sell to people who are coming to give a sacrifice and the Gentiles, you know, well, whatever. It's just the Gentiles. And Jesus was very upset. It was supposed to be a place of prayer, but it's supposed to be a place of prayer for the nations. Because it wasn't just some... Jesus is not just the Jewish Messiah. Jesus is the King of Kings, the Savior of the world. said, this is supposed to be a place of prayer for the nations. I think, in some ways, the church is supposed to be a house of prayer for the nations. And that's our second value, that we're to be a church of prayer. A church of prayer. Jesus said in Luke 10, too, he said, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. So what's our response? Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send workers into the harvest field. So if we're going to see a bumper crop, if we're going to see a harvest we're going to see a spiritual kingdom advancement that really is beyond what we expect. We have to be a church of prayer. This is what we said. We desire to be a church of unceasing personal and concerted prayer where hearing and obeying God's voice is normal for all believers. Second Chronicles 7.14, this is, this is good. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal, heal their land. So I, I think, you know, this verse is for Israel and all those things, but I think there's a, a role for repentance in the church. Repentance in the church. I think I've already talked about it. repent of our lack of obedience. I, when I was looking at Christ's commands just the other day, I was just thinking, I, I've been too casual about this. I've been too careless about this. These are the things a follower of Jesus is called to do, and I haven't really been that attentive like I could be. And prayer is where it begins. So multiplication is recognizing there's a big harvest that Jesus wants to have. And that we're his body that's supposed to be a part of that harvest. And we should shift in obedience to do that. But church of prayer is recognizing that the soil needs preparation. The soil of people, so you pray, many of you pray for friends or people in your sphere of influence and you, or family, and you pray for them that their heart soil will be receptive to the seed of the word of God. And that's good. But also, we need prayer for our own hearts because sometimes we're not as receptive to the direction of God, to his lordship, to his, his direction. We're not listening. We're not even giving time to be attentive so he can direct us and guide us into the things he wants done. And so that repentance, it belongs. Humbling, seeking his face, turning from wicked ways, all part of the prayer that will lead us. 
you know, this is our history. O.J. Lubbock, he's the guy who started the church in the theater downtown. And what he did was he preached. Uh, he called for, uh, for people to come and be healed. Lots of people were healed. Lots of miracles happened in the founding of this church. And then they had services every night. And then during the day, he would meet with people from Moose Jaw, and he would teach them how to pray. He would lead them in prayer, and they would grow in prayer. And that's how our church began. It grew in prayer. Uh, one of the big uh, sort of mini revivals, well, it was a significant one that happened in the 1940s, uh, happened on Old Guard Road. There was a lady who had been praying for seven years for God to touch her neighborhood, which was the farms on Old Guard Road. And in the 40s, it happened. God began to move. They, part of it was calling uh, Pastor Dawson from the, our church out to Old Guard Road to hold services in the, in the little schoolhouse. And the neighborhood uh, came to the Lord in crazy ways. Some of you are in the church today because you're descendants of that, those people who gave their lives to the Lord in the Old Guard Road revival. But it started with someone praying. What happened to start our church was prayer. When Dave Wicks came here as senior pastor, he, he, he felt that there was a call on our church to grow as a church of prayer. When I was on my sabbatical about to go into becoming the lead pastor, I encountered Southland Church, and I just really got reinforced that we need to be a church of prayer. Laura Blackman stepped into that role as our prayer leader for many years and raised up teams. And So the water level of prayer has been rising, but I think, don't think we're done. I think prayer, and it, you can't have a move of God no spiritual awakening happens anywhere apart from prayer. So that's the second thing that I think is our future. Psalm 126.6 says this, Those who go out weeping, carrying seeds to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. So it's like you go out with seed, but you're crying out to God. Because we can't do it. None of us can save a single person. None of us can turn, turn a human heart towards God. We need God to draw them. We need God to do the work in the person's heart, to prepare the soil. Here's the third one, an evangelism movement. We recognize that it's not just, we recognize the bigness of the harvest God wants. We recognize the soil needs preparation, our soil, their soil. But we recognize that we got to cast a lot of seed now, I don't know, you know, farmers, my hat's off to you. You live this life of faith every year. You take seed and you go out into your field and, I mean, you could have just sold that seed. But you say, I'm, I'm going to put it in faith in the ground that I'll get more. I'm going I'm to take this step of faith. But we need to, I think we need to cast more seed I'm talking about evangelism. I'm talking about having spiritual conversations with people about Jesus. What we wrote in our vision paper was, we desire to see our world and people's lives transformed by the gospel through evangelism. So we instituted some things here. We, a few years ago, we met with a bunch of core leaders in the church, and we just said, we're starting from scratch. We totally are looking to the Lord and to wisdom that we can glean from our people on where to go. We really think we need to advance in this area of seeing people come to the Lord through us, you know, sharing the gospel with them. And at that first meeting, I remember people said, well, have you tried Alpha? Maybe we could do Alpha at the church because we'd heard about, yeah, okay, so we started Alpha. That's been an awesome thing. It's happening again this fall. In fact, in just a few weeks. Last year, we 
added sling training. So Alpha is really good. You can bring a friend. It's a really great environment. You can ask any question, even if it's a question that seems disrespectful to God. Nobody will fall off their chair. They just love you. It's awesome. Sling training is, a, is another training. It's where uh, you get trained in how to share your faith. You know, if you're out on the street or you're encountering someone or that moment just comes where you to share your faith, you know what to say. That's another one. We've been talking, we've been using the, some of the tracks of prayer evangelism. That's another one where we've been just talking about, there's a pattern in Luke chapter 10. Start with blessing. Start with blessing people in prayer. See the spiritual atmosphere, the soil, change around them. And then be willing to spend time with people. Don't withdraw from the people in the, of Moose Jaw, but spend time with people who aren't Christians. And then, and then you've blessed them, you're sort of on call, and then suddenly the opportunity, they have a felt need that comes up and you hear about it. Meet it. Make that your responsibility. Whether you can meet it in physical ways or you can only meet it in spiritual ways. You're praying for people that you never thought you'd get a chance to pray for and expecting from God that he'll, he'll do things in their lives. And then all of this leads up to sharing Jesus because this is the kingdom coming close to them. So you share. So we just talk. So we've been we're doing all these things because we said we need to raise the value of winning people to Christ in our community. And it's been awesome. Many of you have jumped in. I, I, I pray that more of you will, will um, respond to God. I, you know what I think? God's going to put his, his nudge on your heart and say, I want you to grow. As my disciple, I want you to take this next step. And I think it's awesome that we have these already things that are, are burning in us, all these things that we've developed and are helping to equip our people. Here's the last one, our last value, for the city. So we desire to be in Moose Jaw's corner, fighting alongside and fighting for Moose Jaw, supporting, blessing, serving its people individually and systematically. Jeremiah 29.7 says this, Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I've carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. So we want the city to prosper and experience blessing. Um, a little while ago, the mayor gave me a, a soccer ball. This is a few years ago. Some German investors came to town, and they might do, start a pea plant, but they didn't. But they gave us, him some soccer balls. So he gave me a soccer ball because I like soccer. I grew up playing soccer and football. Those are my two sports. Anyhow, and it was deflated. And I thought, this is great. I'm going to put it on my shelf. And it's a reminder to me to pray for this city, for its economy, for its prosperity, for it to do well, for people. The ones I was thinking of the most was people who come to this city as newcomers to Canada, and their English isn't very good, that they could have jobs. So I said, when I see that happening, when I see the answer to that prayer, that's specifically what I'm praying, I'll inflate the soccer ball. Until then, it's deflated. And it's on my shelf. And I'm praying. And so many of you are just praying for the prosperity of the city. You want to see the city do well. And we want the city, I mean, we want to be for the city. We'd also like it if the city knew we were for the city. I mean, it's just the, it's just the great greatest command, one and two, all over again. We want the city to know we love God. We want to wear our faith on our sleeve more than we have in the past. We say, we love God and we love you. That's who we are. We're people who love God and we love you. We're for you. We want the city uh, to really flourish and do well. 
1 Peter 2.12 says, Be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. Then even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they'll see your honorable behavior and they'll give honor to God when he judges the world. I keep trying to think of ways I can tell my neighbors, I love God and I love you, without being weird, right? I'm talking to the guys mostly in my neighborhood. That would be really weird. I love you. You know, that, you know I'm not going there. But just to find it in real ways, to act that out. Practical ways, meeting needs, embracing time together with them and, and doing all these things together. So here's the response. I met with a friend this week. He'd come through a really dark few years and he was, he's getting back on his feet. Really awesome to see. And he said a statement that really caught my attention. He said, you know what? I'm doing better. I could see myself in two or three years maybe being able to help people. And I remember thinking, that's awesome. And then after I thought it was awesome, I had a new thought come to my mind, and that was like, no. So I I said, okay, can I just jump back to what you just said? Not two or three years. Now. Not two or three years. Now. Now. Not when I know more, when I get more knowledge, when I get more understanding. You know what? You know what is spiritually potent? People who obey Jesus. That's what's spiritually potent. If you've been a Christian for 40 years and you've just sort of stopped obeying Jesus, the potency needs to be revived. If you're a brand new Christian and you're obeying Jesus, there's potency there. You have something to offer. Christianity is just one, it's a great statement. Christianity is just one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. So you say, I don't know. How could I disciple people? How could I be involved in all these things? It's like, do you know anything about God? Do you know anything about what he's done in your life? If so, you've got something. Are you currently obeying his nudges in your life? Are you currently responsive to him? Is he leading you on a growth curve? Are are you spiritually growing? That's spiritual potency. And so don't wait. Two or three years, I'll step into those things. Even if you're taking baby steps right now, take the baby steps. Take them now. Let me give you this scripture. i just end with this. My food, said Jesus, John 4. My food, said Jesus, is to do, is to do the will of him who sent me. Obedience. And to finish his work. That mission is still ongoing. Don't you have a saying? It's still four months until, until harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now, the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Would you stand with me? Today, I'm just giving broad strokes on some of these things. There'll be more details to come. There'll be more ways in which we we fine-tune this. But we're laying it out now because we want to say this is where we believe God's taking us. We believe he'll resource us. He'll provide the strategies. Some of those we have. Some of them we yet need. 
But it's an act of faith to trust the Lord, to say, God, you, you're going to lead us. You're going to guide us. But this is the thing that I think of the whole thing I really want to emphasize is it's a path of obedience. It's a path of obedience. Make disciples of the nations, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. That's our call. That's our call as a church. Let's pray together. Lord, I feel like I've got two sides of a coin here. One is repentance in my own heart for not prioritizing obedience, even teaching about obedience, and even personal obedience. I feel like that's one side of the coin to say, Lord, lead us into a new day. Lead me into a new day. And then the other side of the coin is joy. Thank you for making me aware. Thank you for a wake-up call. Thank you for your revelation where you just, you just take someone who's half asleep and you say, wake up. Wake up and follow me. And so we recognize you again. You're the best leader. Such an understatement, but you are the best leader. You are the best provider. You're the best overcomer. You have the victory. You have all authority. If we follow you, if we obey you, we'll overcome too. We'll be that church that you are building in the world today that the gates of hell cannot withstand, cannot prevail. So we'll be that if we obey. We'll be that if we walk with you. We'll be that if we, if we hear and respond. So Lord, I pray that the word disciple would mean something potent in our midst. We'd understand uh, who you are and what you've called us to. I, I pray that the, the word Lord would mean something potent in our midst. And I pray that we would not miss the call of God for us in this season. So Lord, let us be part of an eternal harvest. Let us be part of a spiritual harvest. Let us, let us be able to rejoice together, sowers and reapers together with what you have done. Thank you that you've said that there is a white harvest. There is soil that's ready for seed. There is, uh, these things are there. There are people who are spiritually hungry. There are people right now who are spiritually ready. So Lord, let us Let's wear our love for you and our love for this city on our sleeve. Let's, let's, let's live in close proximity to people so that the, the, the light isn't hidden under a bushel, but it shines. Yeah. We're going to sing a song together. These guys are going to lead us. But I know for me, when I get to the end of the service and God spoke to me through his word, or, you know, sometimes the preacher doesn't nail it, but the word always nails me to the, the door, basically. Then I use this last song just to repent and to embrace all that Jesus has called me to. And just, it just, I want to tell you, this is a moment to, to let go of lesser pursuits and grab on to the one that really matters. So let's use that song for this. If God's pu- pushing on your heart, if he's tugging your heart, 
Respond, respond. Just say yes to him in the areas that he's asking. Let's worship together.